Good morning, everyone. As we continue in the pastor series on Revelation, today we're going to look at Revelations chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Let me tell you, this is an action-packed passage of scripture. So stand, keep your ears and your eyes open, and let's see what the Lord has for us today. Revelations chapter 11. And John continues, and he says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They had the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. God bless. And you may be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, if you're like me, right, maybe on a regular basis you tune in or just pull up, I don't know, your favorite news source and just kind of read through the headlines just to see if there's any new developments, especially uh, in some of the things that are taking place over in Eastern Europe, you know, the travesties that are taking place in Ukraine and all that. And maybe if you're like me, by the time you come through the end of the headlines and you just see the, the continued things that are going on over there, the sadness of it all, you know, it, maybe you have this, this lingering question like, what in the world is the point of this? Right? Was you just continue to see just this massive destruction of these cities, you know, the mounting death tolls, 
or, you know, the, the increasing number of people that are becoming refugees and families split up and destroyed, or if you consider, right, like the, the ripple out effects of this war and you think of like the rising fuel costs, or you hear people talk about the coming uh, food shortages that are likely going to come on the heels of this, like, and you see all of this carnage and all of this destruction, and maybe at the end of it you just say, what in the world is the point of all this? And yeah, right? Uh, I've heard some of the explanations. Putin wants uh, a little bit of a buffer zone between Russia and the European Union or the, or the NATO, you know, countries, or maybe he just wants to run, run pipelines down through Ukraine, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, like when you consider the mounting costs of all of this, like you're just left with that lingering question in the face of such travesty and suffering. Like what in the world is the point? Is there any purpose at all to this? And so I think the thing is, like, that we have that question a lot, right? Whenever we face or we see suffering or intense hardship, like, that raises all sorts of questions in our mind. And one of the questions that comes up is the question, like, is there any point to this? Is there any purpose behind this suffering, this pain, this hardship? Right? That's part of one of the uniquenesses of being human is that we have the capacity to ask why and we have the capacity to explore the why, right? Why in the face of all of this? And sometimes that why question seems so poignant and so to the fore in the face of hardship and suffering. You know, and I think about the church that maybe the book of Revelation was written to at the time when it's being written to, the time when they're starting to feel the pressure of opposition and oppression and persecution, all for the sake of Christ, right? His relationships are starting to be frayed, torn apart. So maybe guys are losing their jobs because they won't go to these pagan worship services and promotion of their local trade guild. Or maybe they're starting to feel political oppression, find themselves in prison or worse because they won't come and offer sacrifices or burn incense to the emperor because they're loyal and they're faithful to Christ as king alone. Right, And as they're experiencing that, I, we know that they, there's probably a, a multitude of questions that start coming to mind. Like, okay, am I sure I'm on the right side here? <laughs> right? Uh, am I sure it wouldn't be better for me to swap allegiances and align myself with some other god or with the power of Rome or whatever to avoid all of this? Or maybe the question, like we've seen in Revelation, how long, oh Lord, faithful and true? The other question, for sure, that comes up is this, is there any purpose behind this? Right? Why? Like, how in the world does this fit in with the unfolding plans and purposes of God? If it is the case, the Lamb is on the throne and has taken the scroll and is about to unfold the purposes of God, how in the world does this fit at all into the purposes that God has for his people, for his kingdom, for his creation? Okay, in the book of Revelation, uh, in part, is giving answer to some of those questions reassuring them that you are on the right side. You are worshiping the one who is truly on the throne, right? Giving them some time parameters, actually, which we'll see in our passage today, which we'll talk about. And where our passage goes today is to give a little bit of insight behind the curtain into how the suffering of the church plays into the unfolding purposes of God. Actually, I think it's a pretty neat picture. So I'm anticipating that we're going to come away encouraged, or I've been encouraged, as you see how the hardship and the suffering of the church plays into the purposes of God. I'm also expecting that as we explore that, uh, you're going to be challenged a little bit the way I was challenged by it as well, too. Um, 
And granted, chapter 11 is written specifically to a church that is suffering persecution and oppression because of their alignment with Christ, right? A kind of persecution and suffering that we don't quite experience just yet, yet. Okay. But I think the encouragement and the challenge will still hold. And so that's the goal this morning, is to see the encouragement from this answer of how, at least in part, the sufferings of the church play into the unfolding purposes of God in his creation, his kingdom, but then to also let that challenge uh, sink deep as well, too. Okay? That's where we're going. I have to say from the beginning, uh, chapter 11 is uh, notoriously one of the more difficult passages in the book of Revelation, and it's one of the passages, maybe the only other one being chapter 20, where there are numerous, various, and oftentimes diverse interpretations of, as Corey put it, (laughs) the action going on here and the symbolism in the text. Okay, at the same time, uh, I happen to think that Revelation 11 is one of the more important chapters for helping us understand the grand drama of the book. And it's that big picture purpose uh, that, that I need to get at. So I'm just letting you know from the beginning, I'm not going to be able to dive too deep and to explain all the intricate ways that I'm looking at the symbolic action that's going on here, uh, which is simply to say that some of you uh, might wonder as we're going, okay, how did he make that connection there or what, you know, or maybe you're saying, hey, I've not heard, I've heard other people talk about Revelation 11 and they're looking at these two witnesses that ascend to heaven in this particular way and he seems to be presenting it a little bit differently. Yeah, sorry, you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> but I'd be more than happy to come talk about that afterwards. I want to get people home in a, in, a, in a reasonable time. So I'm just letting you know, some of you might feel that tension. Come talk to me afterwards or email me a question. Be happy to make a video about it because maybe other people are having those questions uh, as well too. All right? But you can tell there's a lot I want to get to, so I'm just going to get right into it. Uh, let's take our 30-second uh, time to just situate ourselves here, right? Remember where we are in this unfolding drama of this incredible book, Revelation. First of all, remember, as we say each week, apocalyptic literature. Hopefully you can repeat it after me now. It communicates God's word to you, to us, using images that you're meant to look at, and study, and to digest, right? And these vivid symbolic images, right? They grab our attention and they pull back the curtain to help us see some of the deeper spiritual realities to life and also what it is God is doing in the midst of the age, past, present, and future, okay? This very image symbolic book is kind of structured along these sequences of seven and we're in the third sequence of seven, these seven trumpets, Okay, And we also happen to find ourselves in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, right? Just like there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. And these interludes are meant to answer the question, okay, well, what of the church in the midst of all that action that was taking place in, in, you know, trumpets one through six? And also just remember, what was the point of those trumpets, you know, this trumpet sequence? Right, part of the goal of the trumpets is to pull back the curtain to life and to expose what John Calvin said you know, 700 years ago that the human heart is an idol factory. That, that we just have this knack to make idols, to take things, you know, money, success, 
relationships, beauty, accomplishment, whatever, whatever it is. And we attribute ultimate value to those things. And we think that if we have these things, then our life will be full of meaning and purpose and goodness and satisfaction. And so we elevate these things in our hearts almost to God-like status. And we worship them and we bow the knee to them and we do whatever it takes to secure these things in the conviction of, well, this is where I'm going to find life. And so the trumpets... Right, They pull back the curtain and see that, yeah, we have this compulsion to do this sort of thing. Instead of worshiping the one who created us, worship these other things, thinking that this is where we're going to find life. And the trumpets expose that business as, at best, futile and worthless because these gods that we're making, they don't have the power to give you the life that you're searching for. And at worst, this is dangerous business. This idolatry is dangerous business. Because uh, it's the joy of the enemies of God to take these idols and use them to torment and to undo you from top to bottom, not to mention draw you away from the one who gave you life and longs to restore life to you. Okay, so that's what the trumpets are meant to expose. And so again, the question, well, what of the church in the midst of this idolatrous age? Okay, and so uh, there there you go. There's your 30-second or one-minute catching up. But here's... Here's how our interlude answers that question. It gives us two images. Two images that represent the church throughout the age. First of all, we got this temple. Actually, a temple situated in a city. And John is giving a measuring rod, and he's told to go measure the temple. And probably the best way to think about this is just like, you know, if you move into a new house and a new neighborhood... Right, And you you pull up maybe with the U-Haul that has all your furniture and all of your lamps and all of your kitchen stuff, right? All that, right? Like you you go into the house and you start looking around. And what's the tool that you're going to have faithfully at your side the whole way? Yeah, or or not at your side. You're going to be like me. You take it off and you put it down somewhere and then you spend half the time trying to find the darn thing. Right, you tape measure. You're just going around in the rooms and you're measuring the rooms Right, you're measuring the living room to see, you know, if the couch is going to fit and where it should go. Should we go straight around an angle? You're measuring the walls to see where am I going to put up the pictures and the decorations and all this. Essentially, what you're doing is you're you're moving in and you're staking claim to the house. You're staking claim to this place as your dwelling, as where you are going to to live and to uh, reside. Right. And in a similar way, like that's what's going on here. John or Jesus is laying claim to his temple. So go measure out my temple, right? This is the place where I'm going to stake my, my claim. I'm going to claim ownership of this, and my presence is going to dwell here. Okay, so raise raises the obvious question. In the New Testament, you know, on the heels of the death and resurrection of Jesus, on the heels of his ascension and the pouring out of his spirit, Where is it that God now makes his home by his spirit? It's not in some building up on a hill somewhere, or it's not even in some one particular sitting. It's it's in the people, in his people, in the spirit-filled people, right? In the New Testament, it's the church, not the building, but the people who are the new temples of God, right? You think of Paul when he writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you know, you are no longer strangers and aliens, uh, but you are citizens with all the saints of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone on which the whole thing is building, being built up into a holy temple for the Lord. In Christ, 
Uh, you are being built up as a holy, uh, not residence, habitation, dwelling place. There it is, as a holy dwelling place for God by his spirit. Right? So this is the picture here when you come to Revelation. Certainly anybody who was reading Revelation in the first century would have understood the symbol symbolism here. The symbolism of the temple is a symbolism for the church throughout the age. And God is doing essentially here the same thing that he did with the church in the interlude in the first seals. Right? He's claiming the church. And just like he put a... Remember the interlude in the, in the seals? He put a seal on his people on their foreheads to mark them as his own and to lay claim to them. So again, here he's laying claim to his church as the place where his spirit is going to abide and his presence is going to dwell. He's going to keep it, secure it. But we're not measuring the city all around it. You know, maybe this picture that the church is going to grow up in the midst of a city, a culture, a world that is being overrun by God's enemies, being trampled down and experiencing corruption and violence. Or maybe even it's not that the church is going to have to know how to navigate in the midst of that, but when you pick up in the passage that the, outer, that the city is also equated to the outer courts of the temple. It's almost like there's this overlap here. So it's almost like the church itself is going to experience some of that trampling and that corruption and that violence, all the while being kept spiritually by the one whose presence abides with them. Great word of encouragement. And though all the world rage around the church, maybe even turn that raging towards the church and then come to experience who knows what. Yet in all of that, God will complete what he has started. He will keep his church. He will guard them. He will protect them spiritually as his holy dwelling place. Okay? And all this happens for a season. Uh, you pick up in there, we've got numerous time references uh, throughout the passage, all relating to three and a half years. All right? So you've got 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years, and uh, this is this number is going to come up a lot through the rest of the book, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it here, other than just to say, think with me, what is three and a half? It is half of what? Except, yeah, good job, yeah. All right, it's half of seven, which out the, throughout the book of Revelation is this number of fullness, right? So in other words, we've got half of that, or we have a number that is not full, or that a number that does not go on in perpetuity, but a number that has a it's a limited period of time, right? Uh, and so that's the picture here. And some of you are probably like, wait a minute. You move too fast. We have 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, half of seven, which is the square root of 49, carry the two. We're like, what in the world are we talking about here? All right, trust me, we'll get back to this later. Just see this picture, symbolic picture of a church in an idolatrous age starting to feel the trampling and the corruption and maybe the violence, all the while being kept but for a prescribed season of time, okay? Half a time, if you will. All right, so then we get into this question. Okay, but so what is the church doing in the midst of that? Okay, they're experiencing these things, but what are they doing? Well, enter these two prophets, or enter these two witnesses, sorry, more specifically, where again, uh, another image for the church, and I you probably your mind like, how in the world is he connecting this? 
plenty to talk about. But just notice, they call them lampstands. There's the clearest giveaway, which throughout the book of Revelation, lampstands always refer to the corporate church. Or you can look at the, how they're referred to as two olive trees, and that's a reference to the book of Zechariah chapter 4, and I'm not going to turn there right now. You can go check that out if you want. Basically referring to uh, this full witness that God has in both the civic and the religious life. Oh, I've already started to peek into Zechariah 4. I didn't want to do that. You just got to see it, that this is also a representation of the church who is called to give witness in this period of time. Some things I will highlight about these witnesses, though, is they look a little bit familiar. Now, one of them looks like Isaiah, oh, sorry, Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, who was called to uh, prophesy against Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, really the whole nation of Israel that was just captivated by this Baal god. And part of his prophetic testimony is that he had the power to shut up the heavens. And God grants him authority to close up the heavens so that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Uh, the other witness looks a little bit like Moses, doesn't he? Who was sent to, to confront the idolatry of Egypt and the oppression of Pharaoh against God's people and who had power to take his staff and to dip it in the Nile River and it turns to blood or who had power to call down plagues. So there's almost a similar sense that these two witnesses or the symbolic representation of the church are also called to confront an idolatrous world. And they're called to confront this idolatrous world and prophesy against them in sackcloth, which is clothes of mourning and sadness. In other words, the church is called to cry out, to be this prophetic witness of the dangers of a life of rampant idolatry. With their words, with their testimony, with their whole lives, they are to prophesy and to point out to the culture about how their rampant idolatry, how their worship of these other things, of success and wealth and beauty and relationships, whatever. At best, it's, it's futile because it can't give you the life that you desire. At worst, it's self-destructive because God's enemies use it to undo you and... It invokes the judgment of God, right? That as you give yourselves not only in worship of these other things, but you give yourself in obedience to them, and you do whatever it takes to secure these things, and you treat the living God however you want, or you treat his creation that he stakes ownership of however you want, or you treat other people made in his image however you want, all in the name of these false gods that you're being obedient to in order to attain you are invoking the judgment of this God, the very sure and certain judgment of this God, which will come at the end of this time. Okay? All right, so that's part of the picture there. Um, you get some other little pictures there, like fires coming out of their mouths and it's consuming their enemies. Uh, I might do a video, I was thinking about, I might like to do a video highlighting how the book of Revelation very much is a war of words or a war of mouths. Like think about Jesus uh, in the beginning and the end of the book, he shows up and he's got a sword, a sharp two-edged sword, but it's where? It's coming out of his mouth. 
You know, you think about that demon, uh, demonic army at the, at the end of the sixth trumpet that kills off a third of mankind, right? Uh, and it's the, the smoke and the fire and the sulfur that comes out of the horse's mouths that consume, you know, mankind. And right here again, too, it's the, what comes out of the mouth. In other words, uh, this is a, this is a war of words and of testimonies and of prophesying. And basically the picture here is that the words, the testimony, the prophetic witness of the church, it will stand and it will be victorious, though the whole world rages against it, perhaps. You're getting here initially some of the line that you're going to see later on in the book of Revelation that the church overcomes by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Okay, but then, let's keep going in this action-packed drama that we have here. Uh, The words, the prophetic witness, the life of the church, what does it also do is that it arouses the wrath and the anger of this hideous monster that emerges, this hideous beast that emerges from the bottomless pit. Right? This captain of the abode of evil, who, which we'll be introduced to more formally uh, in the coming chapter. So again, I'm not going to go too deep into who this character is, but this beast is awakened and aroused in fury and wrath, and he comes to wage war against these two witnesses and kills them in apparent victory. Bodies are laying just dead in the streets, in the street of, which is symbolically called Sodom or Egypt, right? The place of evil and the place of violence and oppression against God's people, right? The people, the, these two witnesses, their bodies, their corpses are laying out in the street for all to see. And right, and you get this morbid scene where people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are flocking to this city so that they can see these bodies laying in the streets. And it's like they're paying admission and they're coming in their tourist garb, and they've got their I Love Sodom t-shirts on, right? And they've got their cell phones out, they're, and they're taking pictures, selfies with the, you know, these dead bodies that are laying in the middle of the street. And then you feel like there's this whole festival that's starting. Like people are celebrating, and they're exchanging gifts. It's like Christmas. And they're dancing and having a great old time because this prophetic witness of the church, which has been such an annoyance to them, lies, conquered in the middle of the street until the third day or three and a half days mighty breath from heaven comes breathes new life into these corpses they stand up on their feet and then a voice from heaven says come up here and they ascend to heaven on a cloud okay and just just pause this for a second because here's where okay you get a lot of interesting interpretations of this right some might say, well, this is a symbolic picture of what actually happened uh, way back in AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem, and, you know, some of the prophetic witnesses that were around then. Or some will say, actually, this is a picture of what's yet to come, about how God is going to rapture up his church out of the great tribulation, or in the middle of the tribulation, or maybe before, you know, whatever. In the tribu- and look, you can make, you can have at it. You can make all sorts of fun, interpretive However you want to do it. For me, it's actually a whole lot more simple than that. (laughs) Just think with me for a second. Okay, so who else in our biblical storyline, I don't know, spent the better part of three plus years of his adult life 
giving public testimony to the truth of who God was and being something of a prophetic witness to the truth of God. And who else at the end of that was killed and strung up on a cross? I'm giving it away now. And as he's strung up on the cross, right, the crowds are gathering around him and they're mocking him and they're cheering and they're counting, crying, crucify. And they're mocking, hail you, king of the Jews. And they're spitting on him, twisting crowned authority, and they're kicking him and beating him as he's traveling by. And who else, right, on the third day was raised to life by the very breath of God, by the spirit of God. And then who else shortly thereafter was called up into heaven and ascended to heaven on a cloud? In other words, if you ask me, the the symbolism here is much more simple than people tend to make it out. And it's just simply saying that the church is following in the pattern of her king. Right? It's the same message that we hear time and time again all throughout the New Testament. Like where, uh, you know, Jesus is encouraging his disciples, hey, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross like me and come follow me. Or when Jesus says to his disciples, hey, don't be ashamed. Don't be uh, surprised. The world hates me. They're going to hate you as well, too. Or Peter, who says to you know, the churches that he writes to, don't be ashamed when the fiery trials come your way as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. Right, that's the picture. The church here is called to participate in the way of the kingdom, in the manner of the king, and which includes his suffering, but also his victory as well, too. Right, the church, or in other words, the church is called to be like this Jesus, who at the very beginning in chapter four or chapter five we saw was the conquering lion, but who plays out his victory like a slaughtered lamb. Right? And in the same way, the church is called to play their part in the kingdom in the manner of the king. Victorious, yes, by the power of God, but in this manner of the slaughtered lamb. See it? Now, here comes the cool part, I think. Notice what happens on the heels of that. When they participate in the same victory of Christ, the ascension of Christ, right? What happens on the heels of that? There's an earthquake. A tenth of the city falls. 7,000 people die. But the rest, what happens? They fear the living God and they give glory to God. And that's a, a little line that you can be quick to just kind of rush over. But if you ask me, this is one of the interpretive keys of the whole book of Revelation. Those One-tenth of the city falls, 7,000 die, but the rest of the people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, they fear the living God, and they give him glory. Right? Which, again, it's the whole point of the trumpets. Right? The whole point of the trumpets was to expose the worthlessness or the self-destructiveness of all these other gods that people erect in their hearts and they bow down and worship to, and to call them instead to the life-giving worship of the true God, to fear him and to worship and give him glory above all else. Where you could argue this is part of the part, part of the point of the whole book of Revelation, right? To show how people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to fear the living God and give him glory alone. Or maybe even just think with me how uh, trumpet number six ended, right? Two chapters ago, the end of chapter nine, right? You remember that? 
when the curtain was drawn back and we showed these worthless idols as empty and powerless and ultimately self-destructive, yet the close of chapter 9 was, yet they still didn't turn and repent, or they still didn't stop from worshiping these demons which were activating behind all these false gods. And so then we turned into chapter 10 last week where John sees another mighty angel and he comes and he speaks and out come these seven thunders. So it's like, okay, here we go. We're going to unleash these seven thunders again. But the angel says, no, wait, wait, hold up. Don't write that down. Seal that up, tuck that away. We're going to go in a different direction. And he gives John a scroll, which is sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. And John prophesies what we have here of this church that will be kept and guarded and secure, but will be trampled. This church that is called to give faithful witness and will be overrun and slaughtered by the beast. And yet, in their faithfulness and in the faithfulness of God to them to lead them in victory, look what happens. Those people before who previously wouldn't repent and wouldn't turn and wouldn't give their life in worship of the true living God now are fearing God and giving him glory. Do you see it? That's a powerful picture. Or in other words, we could say it this way, that what is happening here is that, well, if you look at the cross, what's happening at the cross, right? The enemies of God are gathered around Jesus as he's on the cross, and they're seething, and they're licking their chops, thinking they've got Jesus right where they want him. The crowds are celebrating. They're spitting on him. They're mocking him, tormenting him. The world is enduring the greatest evil it's ever known. Yet at the same time, what's also happening? Their enemies are putting, being put to shame, and the greatest kingdom victory that the world has ever known is being unleashed in God's creation. And in a similar way here, here's the picture. As the church suffers for the sake of Christ, oh, the enemies are gathered around, and they're licking their chops, and they're seething, and the crowds are cheering and chanting. And as they're suffering this horrible evil, what is yet also happening is that the victory of Christ is continuing to be unleashed. The great kingdom accomplishments, the great kingdom purposes, the great kingdom mission is being accomplished through the weakness of the church because of the power of God. Yet not us, but through Christ in us, right? You see it? Sorry, I'm going to keep saying that phrase because I love this chapter. This is such a cool chapter because here it is, right? It gives us encouragement. At least I find this encouragement. That yes, there is purpose and there is a point to our sufferings and to our hardship that God is using it. He's taking it to accomplish his great kingdom mission, his great kingdom agenda. Right? When you experience hardship and suffering and trial and tribulation, and when the things that you love and cherish most are taken away from you, right? these things that everybody else idolizes and thinks, well, there for sure is where life is being found. And when those things are stripped away from you, and yet you don't crumble, and you remain faithful in your witness to Christ, or you give glory to him in the midst of when those things are stripped away and you give testimony to his power in your weakness and maybe even you experience joy and you live out that joy. Can you see what a powerful testimony that is? Can you see how people might be drawn to that and say, like, how is it that you're not crumbling here? These things that are God's to me are taken away from you and you don't crumble and you still find joy and you still find confidence and you still find strength. Uh, it was Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who famously said, it's the blood of the martyrs that becomes the seed of the church. 
And he was saying that in the face of political oppression and persecution, basically saying to the political powers that be, look, you kill us, you slaughter us, but our blood becomes the seed of the church. You kill us, you slaughter us, and look at this, the church grows, which it did, right? This chapter 11 plays out powerfully in the life of the ancient church, right? Persecuted, they're struck down, slaughtered in many ways, and yet their blood becomes the seed of the church, and the church grows incessantly, ultimately converts the whole Roman Empire. And you can look all throughout history. We talk about this often, where the church that is persecuted and under suffering and hardship throughout the church seems to be growing unexplicably in powerful ways. You look at the church around the world today. You look at the church in like northern Africa and Ethiopia, which is suffering intense persecution at the hands of Boko Haram and the Islamic State. Yet for the second half of the 20th century on up into the present has been one of the fastest growing churches in the whole world. I think it was like maybe 8 million Christians in Ethiopia in 1965. Now there's something like 62 million. Or, you know, it's just massive growth. And you look at the stories that are coming out of these underground home churches in China, and though the state is trying to squelch their witness, yet they're growing. Or you look at the church in, in Iran amidst all the persecution and oppression and the way that it's growing most dynamically, right? That, that mantra of Tertullian that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church, it plays out throughout history. And to be encouraged by that. There is power and there is purpose in this church's suffering. But real quick, in just the last couple of minutes here, there is a challenge in this as well, too. And actually, the challenge comes this way. Actually, certain social historians and church historians have said, well, in actuality, it's not always true that the blood of the church becomes the blood of the, you know, the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Because there's plenty of times throughout history where the church does suffer and it doesn't grow. And what they've said is actually to be more accurate or to push the point, it's when the church is faithful in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship that it tends to grow very dynamically. Or it's when those things are stripped away and yet they don't crumble. But the things that they value and they treasure and they love most in life are ripped away from them. And the relationships that they love dearly suffer and are pulled away. And in those moments when they don't crumble and they give faithful testimony to who Jesus was and they continue to press on and live their life in holiness, in a holy pursuit of who Jesus was, that that's when their testimony is powerful and the surrounding culture says, what in the world is this? And the church grows in dynamic ways. Which is the challenge for us. Certainly a challenge for me. Because I, I don't think I'm one that suffers well. I was reading back through that passage in First Peter where he's writing to these exiled Christians and he says, let me read it again. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted... For the name of Christ, you're blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, let him glorify God in that name. And man, you read through that list, and I feel like that, that chapter is a rolling indictment of the way I suffer or the way we suffer. Right? When suffering comes my way, I think it's strange. 
right? Because in this hyper-technological age that we live in, right, the name of the game is you go through life easier, quicker, and with and, and painlessly, right? We're always trying to create technology to take pain and trial and hardship out of the equation, right? And such, and so we're ingrained now to think that when suffering comes, it is strange. And when suffering comes, I have justification to break with the standards of holiness and do whatever it takes to put that suffering to an end. And don't rejoice all that often because I'm participating in the sufferings of Jesus. Oh, great. But when that suffering comes, I don't pause and consider how blessed I am that I have the spirit of the living Christ with me. And when that suffering comes, my first impulse is not to stop and to give thanks. But when I suffer, my first impulse might be to actually suffer like an evildoer. And to make those who are causing me to suffer to feel my wrath. Whether it's through silent treatment or through unleashing verbal assaults or whatever. Making them feel a little bit of what they've taken from me. And so that's the challenge for us. It's not just the seed. It's not just the blood of the church. It's the seed of the church. It's when the church suffers faithfully. And so the question for us, the challenge that it poses, yeah, okay, so how do I do that? How do I live more faithfully in the midst of even hardship and suffering? How can I seize the opportunity when all the other things that the other, that the surrounding culture runs after, chases after, and idolizes are stripped away from me? How do I not crumble? And how do I not become like the surrounding culture? But how do I give glory to God? How do I show the world the worthiness of Christ in the midst of all of that? How do I show the world that he is more than sufficient for me, though you take everything else away? That's the question. And here's where I wish I had another whole extra hour to answer that question in entirety. But I'll just remind you as we close, just remember some of the things that the book of Revelation has been aiming to lead you in, to shepherd you all along, right? It wants you to see behind the curtain. It wants you to see, and it's an invitation to see anew the king who's on the throne, the lamb, the conquering lion, who is accomplishing his victory, even in the midst of your suffering, when you can see no tangible point to it all. It's an invitation for you to come and to receive and to believe anew the promises of God that says this is only for a season. And even in this season, I've staked you out. I've measured you out. You belong to me. I'm going to keep you. And I'm making my abode, my presence with you. It's to see, oh man, we didn't even have a chance to talk about it. These, uh, these witnesses who are prophesying, it says actually in the presence of God. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought they were prophesying in the surrounding culture. Is it in the midst of the culture or in the presence of God? And the answer is yes, it's both. Never, for not for an an instant, are they facing what they're facing separate from the presence of God, the enlivening, the empowering, the satisfying presence of his spirit. Right, So it's an invitation to receive that, to see that. And it's an invitation to remember our first love together, to remember that we're called to love one another and to suffer together, to bear one another's burdens, to be open, to be vulnerable, to be exposed with each other so that we can pray for each other, we can walk with each other and suffer together as the corporate prophetic witness so that his glory might be advanced through us in powerful ways. Lastly, It's also a reminder to see all that is yet to come. The glory of this kingdom when it's consummated and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation turn and fear the living God and give glory to him. And you see the ways that your sufferings have been used for the culmination of this glorious kingdom 
And there's where we'll close it up next week, at the end of chapter 11, the great songs of hallelujah in the face of this coming kingdom. And that's where we'll close up this great season finale, if you will, of the book of Revelation. We'll put it on pause, and we'll come back later and finish out the book. But as we go, may God draw us into a deeper commitment to holiness in the face of suffering so that his life, his power, his glory might be demonstrated all the more significantly through us. May he do that for his honor and glory in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.